He's got one foot in the frying pan and one in the pressure cooker. Believe me, as a bowler, I know that right about now, your bladder feels like an overstuffed vacuum cleaner bag, and your butt is kind of like an about-to-explode bratwurst. Hey, do you mind? I wasn't talking when you were bowling. Was I talking out loud? Welcome to Munson's at the Movies. My name is Kyle. I will once again be your host. Joined by the rest of the Munson's, want to give them a wide berth. What is called a born loser? A real Munson. <laughs> and talk a little bit about what's going on in their worlds. We'll start this time with Case. Well, I'm excited to talk about the man of the hour, William Atherton, tonight. And, you know, I didn't have really anything going on to update you all about, except this morning... I got an email from the podcast chart update, and I shit you not, somehow we showed up in the top 75 in Brazil, and the episode hasn't even gone yet. And, and then I remember myself, oh yeah, there's something going down tonight. Our Brazilian famous guest is going to be joining us, so I'll, I'll let you introduce him later. Other than that, <laughs> there's nothing going on in my world. <laughs> James. Happy Pride Month. A little... Christine Bransky's walking, full-on walking now. So, Kyle, uh, I might bring her on over to your housewarming party and uh, show her off as she can maybe make it like a good 10 steps before eating shit, but she's she's getting it. There, let's go. Nice. Yeah. Kyle, have you kid-proofed the house just in case? I have cigarettes everywhere, like in reasonable <laughs> grasping distances. So does that count? Yeah, it's perfectly yeah. ready. Yeah. Yeah. It's impossible to to kid prep for my kid because she craves danger. So even if you <laughs> fucking put styrofoam on everything, she'd still find a way to get seriously hurt. <laughs> Aubrey. There was a lot going on. Taught my kid how to ride a bike. Hell yeah. Watched a lot of dope movies, wrote some things, taught reading. But I feel like there's really only one to update that matters here. Saw Fast 10. I had a great time. All right. And it was. I mean, it's a, it's a Fast and Furious movie. It's exactly what I expected it to be. And it was a good time. Aubrey, the movie you saw, they said the word family 56 times during it. <laughs> Are you serious? Feels right because it was said so many times that I stopped hearing it. <laughs> that number is documented 56 times. So ridiculous. This podcast is so obsessed with that movie. I find myself at gatherings telling the most useless Fast and Furious. <laughs> and people are like, well, you love those movies, don't you? I go, no, I mean, honestly, I don't. They're like, I don't know. You know a lot about them. <laughs> Wait till they find out only two of the five of us are actually fans of those movies. <laughs> Rigby. After reading some of the reviews of Killers of the Flower Moon, really looking forward to that this fall. Obviously, for those who listen to our DiCaprio episode, he's one of my favorites. And when you pair him with Scorsese, it's always going to be a good movie. So great book, too. Yeah, it is. That came out in 2017. So I'm excited. Excited to see that. It's going to be a long couple months to wait for that. Would you recommend that book before watching the movie? Because I got a summer I got a summer reading list and I was debating. Yeah, this I would. If you have five months to read it, I would. If it, do, if it doesn't come out till October, I would definitely do it. Okay, we'll do uh, in my world, I had to make a really unfortunate decision. I tried to live the cheap life as much as I can, and that meant I had a limited number of like phone minutes and texts lately, and I had to upgrade to unlimited because James just would not fucking leave me alone about going to see Fast X. And <laughs> like my life was it was just getting too in the way. So James, I'm gonna Venmo you. Yeah, dude. my plan. 
And we still haven't gone. I've, I've just been stiff arming him for, for the last week and a half. So <laughs> God won't leave me alone. I can't wait to see the, the cars and the, the stuff. I bet it's great. Family. It's about family. Family. It's for research, James. You got to do it for, the, for your segment, man. Come on now. That's what it's all about. But you know what? What it's really all about is the return of one of our favorite guests, our first ever Munson guest, Dan Craig. Back at it, he's a high school English and film teacher and has the dubious distinction of knowing Craig Case for the past 20-plus years. He was previously with us for Chris O'Dowd, Tim Roth, Willem Dafoe, David Spade, and Maggie Smith. What a potpourri of performers that is. <laughs> Today, he becomes the first six-time guest Munson. Welcome back, Dan Craig. Woo! Those five individuals are uh, uh, just forming a band actually called Potpourri. And uh, they have an album dropping this fall. So be on the lookout for that. <laughs> is William Atherton joining? Yeah, Atherton's uh, coming in on the next uh, tour. You know, a winter tour of Poland and Iceland. You know, coming now, so be on the lookout for him. I just feel like he'd be the manager of the yeah. band. You know what I mean? Uh, a percussionist. He's a percussionist? I would imagine so. Shady manager. Shady manager. <laughs> <laughs> Taking more than 10%. Yeah, definitely. That's good. <laughs> How's it going otherwise, Dan? Life's good? Great. Uh, great to be back here. Great to see y'all. I can't echo enough what you said about Killers of the Flower Moon. I actually just finished my second read-through of the book, and it's amazing. I can't wait for the movie to come out. And in personal news, my oldest son is now driving me home from school on a regular basis because he just got his permit. So that is a new, exciting chapter in our lives here. For those that didn't know, Dan Craig apparently carries a lot of weight in the Brazilian podcast world. Every time he's on our podcast numbers in Brazil, shoot through the roof. <laughs> I cannot explain it, but I'll embrace it. Mm -hmm. He's got many admirers. Well, we're an admirer as well. Happy to have you back, and let's let's dig into this thing. Episode 84. All right, Rigby. Birthdays, June 1st. What do we got? Yeah, we got a good list. Only two tonight, but two big ones. First up, Mr. Logan Roy himself and Hannibal Lecter in my favorite Hannibal Lecter movie, Manhunter, Mr. Brian Cox. I don't think I've seen Manhunter, but like Silence of the Lambs is amazing. It makes me want to watch it now, though. It's good. Manhunter is definitely different than Silence of the Lambs, but I like it more. It's a Michael Mann movie, so and I like Michael Mann a lot. Well, Brian Cox is most famous for Super Troopers, of course, but yes, he's also in Succession. <laughs> That's what I was going to say is I'm I'm glad he's getting his day because he's been in a lot of good stuff, and he'd be a fun guy to cover just because he's had some really good roles, and now he's like more famous than he's ever been, so I love that for him. Yeah, he's the voice of McDonald's. He's doing great. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba. <laughs> I always remember him as the dad and the rookie. He takes the ball and throws it in the air at the end when Dennis Quaid gives him the ball. Cute. I love the rookie. It's like that. That movie so just hits the sweet spot. I like it a lot. You know, he seemed old in Super Troopers. He was. Yeah, he was. Seventy-five. Great guess. He's the main guy in Succession, and the main plot of Succession, without spoiling anything, is that he's too fucking old. He <laughs> <laughs> catches up with him eventually, though, right? Yeah, yeah. He's, he's just old. You know, you can't be that old running TV stations. I'll say a little older. I'm going to go seventy-eight. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba. He's 77. <laughs> 73? going to change the trajectory of where we're going here. Getting claustrophobic. I'll go 71. Wow. I, if if I would have guessed, I would have guessed he'd be much older than all of you guys guessed. So, uh, but he's turning 77. Kyle, you nailed it. Oh, oh. 
Yeah, right on the dot. I thought he was older because, like you said, he was t- Super Troopers was what 2001? Yeah, 2001, I think. And he, I thought he was like, I thought he was in his 60s in that movie. So I was like, he's got to be mid 80s, but he's yeah, he's only 77. Still got a lot of career left. Super Troopers came out in 2001. God, I'm on one right now. Yeah, <laughs> good job. All right. Second, we got Mr. Morgan Freeman. Ooh. Uh, he's in some of our favorites, I'm sure. Shawshank Redemption. Damn. Nominated in Million Dollar Baby. Nominated in Driving Miss Daisy. Both those movies kind of stink, but he'll always uh, he'll always be in my heart for uh, Shawshank Redemption, that's for sure. The Dave Chappelle commercial. Hmm. Morgan Freeman's old. He guesses on, on MF. He's always been old. Yeah, 82. 85. Give me 83. Give me 80. I'll take 82. Ooh. All right, Aubrey wins this one. He's actually turning 86. Damn. Back. Makes sense. Very old. I think it's awesome that we uh we gave both those guys a birthday shout out because they're they're <laughs> two of the two of two of the best older actors in Hollywood right now. So happy birthday to Brian and Morgan. Absolutely. This is episode 84, and we had five actors we threw onto the wheel. We had John Ortiz. James McAvoy, Mila Kunis, and Kevin Hart, but it did not matter because the wheel chose William Atherton and Dan Craig was in on the joke and said, you know what? We're going to come do Will Atherton because that's going to be a lot of fun. And I agree. I think it's going to be a good time. Bill Atherton's got 90 credits on his resume, and that doesn't include some of a bunch of his theater work that he's done over the years. And of those 90, he has 19 TV movies. So, you know, that's that's a data point. We'll get into the rest of the data points as we go along. But before we get too deep into things, we always start with James and see if he can stump us Fast and Furious style with some trivia. So I'll explain the rules. I'm going to read off three facts, two of which are going to be true about Billy Atherton. One of them is not going to be true about him, but is actually going to be true about one of the many cast members of the illustrious Fast and Furious franchise. Guys here have to guess which one isn't true. Fact number one was once slashed in the face with a broken beer glass at a club, which required 140 stitches and reconstructive surgery, and the assailant was sentenced to five years in prison. Fact number two. Claimed that he was once homosexual, but became straight due to learning the philosophy of aesthetic realism. Fact number three. Once questioned the safety of a scene on a movie set so much that he requested a stunt double take his place for the shoot, even though he didn't have one. The stunt double filmed the scene and was hurt instantly as he had predicted. <laughs> that is the most banana set of facts you've had in 84 episodes. It's insane. Yeah, it is. I love it. I didn't want to spoil it in the chat. Wow. I'm going to go three is a lie only because I really want that to be a Fast and the Furious character who wimped out on a stunt. <laughs> I just don't know which one. Let's go Paul Walker on that one. Rest in peace. James is always playing with a stacked deck. And at one of these times, he's going to throw a fastball by us and use somebody that the fans are really wanting to be in this movies that aren't yet. I'm going to dip my toe into the fan fiction world of Fast and the Furious. And I'm going to say that the lie is number one. And that is about a future bad guy in a Fast and Furious movie, Cat Williams. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you, Case, you nailed it. And kind of ruined the game for everyone else. <laughs> yeah, way to go. I love Cat Williams. <laughs> I genuinely have no idea. I literally don't know because these are all new facts for me. So this is a good job, James. I think I think number one is a really intriguing fact. So I think that's not true about William Atherton. But I bet it's Charlize Theron. I bet it is. 
she's just a fascinating human would not be shocked if she had 140 stitches on her face yeah i feel like it's the third one but i don't know who wouldn't have a stunt double on that set so i'm trying to think of someone who wouldn't have a stunt double i'm, I'm gonna circle back on this one and go i feel like this is a tyrese thing <laughs> he would say something and he wouldn't have a stunt double yet early in the fast and furious run so that's what i'm going with Ooh, waiting for one last guess i say number one is the lie, and I'm going with I'm following Craig Case's lead there, and I'm going to go ahead and say, and again, I know nothing about Fast and Furious. Have yet to see a single film. I know it exists. I know it's out there, and I haven't seen a single one. So I'm going to say a person who may have very well been in a film that I don't know about, but I would say number one belongs to Danny Trejo. Ooh, yeah, he should be no question. And I will say that no one guessed number two which is that he claimed he was once homosexual but became straight due to learning the philosophy of aesthetic realism. And seeing that it's Pride Month, I felt inclined that I had to share this story. On the Phil Donahue show in 1981 titled Are Gays Born This Way? A year after Atherton had become married to a woman who he is still married with today, he claimed on that show that he was once homosexual and changed due to the philosophical beliefs of aesthetic realism. While aesthetic realism still exists today, the foundation that supports this philosophy has widely distanced itself from the claims that homosexuality is a choice because, you know, it's bullshit. The The interview is still there and it's still, you could watch it on YouTube because I didn't want to make this claim on this podcast unless, you know, I could confirm that this actually happened or just wasn't an internet rumor. And I watched the whole thing and Sure as shit, it's him. And he's made no comments since then about this. But it was a wild thing to read. And I, you know, I just hope he finds peace in his life at some point. Fact number three. Once questioned the safety of a scene on a movie so much that he requested a stunt double take his place for the first shoot, even though he didn't have one. Stunt double filmed the scene and was hurt instantly, as he had predicted. That is true. That was on the set of Ghostbusters. Ooh. He did not have a stunt double for the scene where the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man explodes and he gets covered in marshmallows. <laughs> yep. And he said, he's like, I was looking up and it's just a big old dumpster filled with shaving cream. And he's like, and that's a lot of shaving cream. And I'm like, I don't know. I want a stunt double. And they all, and he's like, and they thought I was some sissy actor who was just needed to be catered to. And he's like, and I asked them, how much does that weigh? And like, well, the shaving cream itself weighs about 75 pounds. And he's like, you know, the whole like high school science thing, a pound, 75 pounds of feathers or 75 pounds of bricks. It's like, you don't think that's going to crush me because it's still 75 pounds. And they're like, it's shaving cream. And they got a stunt double and it crushed them instantly. And so they, uh, they cut it in half and they're like, what if we drop like 35 pounds on you? He's like, that's fine. And there you go. I thought that was, uh, I thought that was funny to watch some dude get crushed by heavy shaving cream. <laughs> Fact number one was one slash in the face of the broken beer glass. Not actually true about him, uh, but the star that required 140 stitches and reconstructive surgery and led to someone being arrested and spending five years in prison. That was actually Jason Momoa, the new star of the Fast X movie that's in theaters right now. Atherton does mention how most of the fans he's greeted by dislike him because he's most famous for playing like a great asshole. But he said the worst thing that's ever happened to him was people calling him dickless because of Ghostbusters. And uh, <laughs> I got spit on once. He's never been cut in the face, though, like Jason Momoa. <laughs>
<laughs> I had a feeling you were going to go Momoa, and I bailed. Oh. <laughs> he still got the scar. Like you could see it. I mean, it helps being uh, you know Hawaii's model of the year. Uh, no one seems to give a shit about the scar, but you could tell. Great facts and stories. Those are great. Those are great. Still cranking them out. Doing well. That's right. All right, Case. Let's hear about that snapshot in box office history. In the last couple episodes, you guys have really tested my ability to mine interesting facts as it relates to character actors from the 90s and 80s uh, in movies as it relates to their box office performance for Will Atherton. Just a lot of gaps because he has done a lot of TV work and a lot of the movies, including the one I'm going to cover, are TV movies, so we don't get any box office there. You know, he did another HBO movie, Dorothy Dandridge, that we talked about with Halle Berry. No box office stuff there. The data is pretty limited, but what I was able to come out of it, a couple of interesting notes, because of Ghostbusters uh, and a couple other movies that had relatively low budgets comparatively to their box office earnings, he does okay. He finishes 33rd in individual movie performance. He finishes 84th in Star Meter, which was foreshadowed by the fact that every time I told somebody who we were covering this week, they said, who's Will Atherton? <laughs> I agree. And I'm like, well, it's William. Maybe you know him by William Atherton? And they're like, nope. And I'm like, IMDB Meter is dead last. So that's, uh, that's where he ends up on that one. The areas that we evaluate everybody against... He's 67th in total box office, 84th in, in star ranking, 63rd in critic ranking, 56th in fan ranking. As I said, 33rd in one box office metric, 43rd in the other. And when you uh, put that all into a, a Stay Puff Marshmallow Man and explode it, it comes out at 69th. Nice. Someone's got to be 69th. So proud of Billy Atherton for pulling that one off. There you go. It's higher than I thought it would be. He's right ahead of Rene Russo and right behind Gabriel Byrne. Mm. What a weird grouping of people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what a sandwich of humans right there. I would think Rene Russo would be higher than both of them. Yeah. In my mind, she's like a movie star, and the other two are like character actors. I don't know why. I agree with that. Numbers don't lie, I guess. Maybe. Maybe Craig lies, but the numbers don't lie. <laughs> I do not. I do not. <laughs> all right. Well, let's see how that Munson matches up sixty to 69 when it's all said and done out of, out of 84. All right. First major role we're going to cover is 1974. So the pre-1974 years with Bill Atherton. So first and foremost, he was born in 1947 for the dyslexic, just to challenge you. Uh, he was born in Orange, Connecticut. He's got a Connecticut boy. We've covered a lot of folks from the Northeast lately. A lot of Boston, Massachusetts, and Connecticut folks. Mm -hmm. He studied acting at Carnegie Mellon there in uh, Western Pennsylvania. He graduated in 1969. I know Carnegie Mellon is known for a lot of great academic stuff. Is its acting school a, a notable or prestigious acting school? I think so. I've seen it pop up a few other times. Not quite Juilliard, but okay. what you'll notice if you research Bill Atherton's life is he very much got his start in the theater. So doing a lot of stage productions, trained on the stage. And so he got his Broadway start in New York City um, right around that same time he graduated um, from Carnegie Mellon right there around 1970. So very, very busy on the stage. His first offstage role 
was in 1972's The New Centurions. He played Johnson. And then a year later, he was a, a fraternity president in class of 44. A shout out to him. What fraternity? I don't know. I, I didn't see it. Anybody else see class of 44? No, I missed that one. Oh, man. I definitely buy him as a jerk fraternity president. That's oh, great. I'm, yes. Oh, so he's got Delts energy is what you're telling me, right, Rick? <laughs> Big teak, bro, you know? <laughs> I, I think he was a member of Uzma Kappa. That's, that would be my best guess. <laughs> little little Monsters University shout out there. But he hits the stage in 1974's The Sugarland Express. He plays Clovis. And I'm really excited to hear James talk about it because, uh, spoiler, I loved this movie and I really liked him in this role. So I'm very interested to hear if James aligns with me. So Sugarland Express, uh, it's actually based on true events of May of 1969 when fugitives Robert and Ella Faye Dent kidnapped a uh, state trooper, Kenneth Crone, commandeered his car and led police and other law enforcement officials on a chase throughout Texas with the plan to go kidnap their own son back from the foster home in which the state was keeping him at because they were two uh, low-level criminals. Let me tell you, the movie actually stays pretty true to the story, which is impressive because the story itself is more fascinating because of how non-action-packed it is. Uh, the vast majority of this car chase is slow, and it's, it's 150 police cars going throughout Texas, and they're not speeding, and these people kind of become like folk heroes, essentially, which is interesting because the the movie itself portrays that really well um so it stars a young goldie hawn and william atherton as the famous couple uh it's also the directorial debut of a director you guys may have heard of before uh his name is steven spielberg <laughs> who was 26 when he made this movie and let me tell you you can kind of see the talent already it is like it's like a complete movie and it's it doesn't feel like it's you know, cut or like it, it's made in a way that is kind of like jarring where you're like, oh, all right, this is a guy like straight out of college, but he'll figure it out. It's like, I don't know, it came together really well. And you could already see kind of like the classic Spielberg stuff where like there's the huge set pieces where there are side characters that are kind of black and white where it's like, hey, here's a good guy. Here's a bad guy. Here's the people we're running from. Here's the people that are with us. But it is also very Spielberg-esque in that like the visuals of it are probably the better parts of the movie. And I think it starts off kind of light and fun and it's like a romp of like, oh, the hijinks this couple that broke out of prison is going to get into and it's all to save their kid. And But the story itself has like a unhappy ending and it's one of the few Spielberg movies that has an unhappy ending. And also, I guess it's based on a true story and the true story has an unhappy ending, which I think made me like the movie a little bit more. Um, and I thought Atherton was good in this. I, I agree, Kyle. I think you could see the kind of star power of Goldie Hawn, but like, I think they did have a chemistry and they had the chemistry of like that crazy couple that's trying to, you know, figure it out, even though all their ideas are kind of like half-baked and a little stupid. I enjoyed it. We'll talk about Ghostbusters and roles like that where people will remember him. But as a lead actor in a film, this is, I think, his best work. And it's wild because he's such a young, raw actor. Spielberg met him when he was in New York and essentially recruiting for roles. 
he's the emotional center of the film. And, and there's a moment in the movie, and I watched this video, a guy was talking about breaking this down. And when I saw the film, there's a scene where he is that he and Goldie Hawn are watching cartoons, so watching Looney Tunes from the the next door like yep. trailer, and he's like voicing the characters. And then there's this incredible shot where he's watching, and you can see the reflection of Wiley e. Coyote, and you see his expression change because he realizes like I'm not getting out of this thing unscathed. I'm not getting out of this thing alive. It was at that moment I was like, God damn it, Spielberg, good. Mm-hmm. You could see the talent already. Holy moly. So, and I thought he was phenomenal as Clovis. His, I wish I'd seen more of this throughout the rest of his career. He honestly he peaked for me in 1974. His first role. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> How cool is it? His first role is, is also Steven Spielberg's first movie. I think that's really cool. Yeah. When you ask him about it now, he's like, it didn't really click for me at that time because, like, like Goldie Hawn was already a star. Mm-hmm. She's like she wasn't at the to ascend to the level that she became. But it's like yeah, you know she was an award winning actress. I was working on Broadway, and here's a guy who everyone says is like this genius, you know, like savant filmmaker. It's like, but we're all like 24, so it's like it's like we're a bunch of kids hanging out in Texas for like three months. You don't really realize how big everyone is going to be after this. I think Jaws came out the next year and that's sort of right. Like, exactly. And so on the map didn't take him long. Right. You know, you meet someone and you're like, yeah, they're a cool coworker. And then you find out your cool coworker is one of the greatest directors of all time. And it's like, <laughs> well, I didn't feel that way when I was 20, you know, it's like, I didn't know that yep. was going to be the case. <laughs> yep. You guys had me at Goldie Hawn. <laughs> I watched this one too. I was blown away. I saved this one towards the end because I had never, I'd never seen this one it was the first watch for me. It's incredible. It's just fully incredible. I think I might like it even more. I was just, I've been kind of buzzing about this movie. Mm -hmm. I seen with the cartoons, the scene the next morning when he's talking to the officer about like what's going on. I mean, Spielberg is one of the goats, so it's kind of hard to classify him in like simplistic terms, but I always attach him to the idea of like anytime a director can capture like true wonder, like a, a wondrous moment or something that like creates like a genuine like childlike wonder i always equate that to him because i think it's almost impossible to do that on film and so many directors fall short of it and he just does it time and time again what i was struck with in this was his way to just generate empathy Mm -hmm. all the way through this movie he's just building this empathy machine where everyone like the layout of what these kids essentially because that's how they're acting did what they lost because of what they did which really wasn't that bad so you get a movie that's really interesting to watch in 2023 you feel so bad for him when they pull up to that house and she's like go get him he's it in the mm-hmm. and the cops like i i wouldn't do it this is the vibes off it's too quiet yeah, yeah. and she's screaming at him to go in there and you could tell every ounce of him is like no nah, it's a bad idea but like i'm doing it for love that's that was so so impre- impressive about william atherton to me is that he does all the heavy lifting here mm-hmm. yep Hunt's carrying it like because but she's like a star so she's kind of carrying it but there's no nuance to her character at all she's just fanatic he brings all of it you know, you can kind of piece, you can pick apart her situation for some of that empathy, which is just great writing and great directing. But she is pretty one note in a way that like keeps you engaged. It's a great performance from both of them, but he does a lot of the heavy lifting. Even in that scene that you're talking about, he's the one struggling. Like you can tell he knows, and he's like, mm-hmm. "What? No, I don't want to do this, <laughs> but I guess I got to do it." It's. I think it's a brilliant movie. 
But William Atherton is really impressive. It's just really good. Highly recommend people go check it out. It's not streaming free. You'll have to pay to rent it, but it's it's worth every so penny. So worth it. So worth it. Worth every penny. How was his performance of When My Blue Moon Turns to Gold? <laughs> I, you know, solid. Not not a top five <laughs> moment for him, but... He's already got two performing credits. Uh, he also performed What Will I Do in a Great Gatsby by now. So th- our man is on the fast track to the top. Make a note. Other talents for that Munson meter later. You know what's coming. Six years before he became straight, which is, you know, wild. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking crazy, dude. <laughs> crazy. We've got nine years until our next review. And so in that that span of 75 to 84, we see him play Borth in the Hindenburg in 1975. Another one of those, if you look on someone's IMDb, their top four roles, another one that shows up is The Day of the Locust. He's played played Todd, 1975, a remake. I watched it. It was hard for me to get through. It's about old Hollywood and a, a young starlet and essentially the, the men and folks who are kind of rallying around this young starlet who's kind of a hot mess. And he, he plays one of those individuals at the center of the story. He gets mangled pretty hardcore by the end of the movie, but I struggled with the film itself. I did not enjoy it, but he's perfectly fine. Again, another leading role and one of his bigger roles over the years. Yeah, I haven't seen this. I wish I would have because I love Donald Sutherland and I like Karen Black a lot, too. They are the other main actors. Even though she was a Scientologist, that's okay. (laughs) She plays a batshit crazy person in this movie, so uh, right on brand. Yeah, in every (laughs) role, she's like... The manic, just crazy woman. Uh-huh. But she does it very well. This movie was like the proto-Babylon. If anyone saw Babylon out there, right? This is like the original Babylon. Uh, yeah, you The masterpiece, according to Aubrey. I love Babylon. <laughs> was that vomit sound because of the movie or my opinion? Oh, both. Yeah. <laughs> a couple years later, he played James in Looking for Mr. Goodbar, which I think is a phenomenal film title. And, and first and foremost... He played, I, I watched a little bit of the character. It's kind of like a, it's an, it's an oddball type of character. So it's a little bit different than some of the other things. He's very oh, worrisome. It's a very worrisome character. And it's almost like he's a hypochondriac. He's got that kind of mentality. So it's unique. It's different. Unfortunately, the, the only way it, place it was streaming, it's a really bad quality version on YouTube. So it's not, it wasn't a great viewing experience. This is one of his better box office movies. It had a $2.5 million budget, and it pulled in $23 million. That's wild. Mm-hmm. Especially in the 70s. Holy shit. I wonder if they only found Crackles, or if they ever found Mr. Goodbars in there. No. Uh, I'm, laughing. I'm, it's good. I'm ashamed <laughs> that I'm proud and embarrassed of that joke <laughs> at the same time. I'm laughing at, I'm laughing at the boo, sorry. <laughs> so, um... His first like big TV show role was in Centennial. Played Jim Lloyd. Ten episodes of that from seventy eight to seventy nine. We're going to continue to go through this, but I'm a massive fan of the names of his characters. <laughs> Jim Lloyd, Borth, Richard Thornburg. He's Clovis. Yeah, Clovis Poplin. Come on, guy's got great names. He's that's worth a couple points, I think. Those are great names. I agree. Good. That's what 84 episodes in, and you're picking up the, the important stuff, Case. And I appreciate it. And then, as James alluded to earlier, he converted away from the gay to marry Bobby Golden in 1980. We just decided he was not going to be gay anymore, you know? Gay ain't the way. That's a bizarre story. I'm going to give him credit 
that he said it 40 years ago yeah. and that maybe he's wised up since then. Let me tell you, oh you don't goodness. have a lot of comments from him since then. I'll say that much. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, he probably hasn't talked about it since. Oh man, that's pretty good. All right, so that's going to get us to highest critic score in 1984's Ghostbusters. Walter Peck, Rigby drew it. Yeah, I got lucky this week. Everyone knows Ghostbusters. This is a, obviously an 80s classic, comedy classic, whatever you want to call it. Great comedy trio in Harold Ramis, Bill Murray, and Dan Aykroyd. They play parapsychologists who basically are psychologists who dabble in the paranormal and the afterlife. And when they lose their uh, university positions, they decide to start a ghost, we'll call it a ghost busting uh, operation. Operation, yeah. Uh, the movie's it's a classic, as we all know. It's got some hilarious one-liners from Bill Murray, some hilarious, even slapstick, just like ridiculous comedy that we all know and love from this era. Atherton plays what I think is his sort of his sweet spot. He plays an EPA official who gets word of the Ghostbusters operation sees it as a threat and wants to shut it down and is basically standing in the way of everything that that the three are doing plus ernie hudson at this point i should say so four um but he's yeah he's a total just jerk in this he's just a smarter know-it-all than you sort of government agent and really really does a good job playing the villain he's obviously not the biggest character in the movie that would go when you have when you're going up against those four, maybe even five, if you throw Sigourney Weaver in there. Yeah, and and Rick Moranis and Rick Moranis. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, tough to not be overshadowed by those guys, but I think he does a really good job as the villain. He's he's a very got a very punchable attitude, very punchable, just face and yeah, <laughs> not as punchable as Die Hard, which we'll get to. That's actually my favorite role of his, but this is uh, this is up there for me. So. Hate that clown. Netflix has a great documentary series about movies that we all grew up with. And in season one, Atherton's in two out of the four. And Ghostbusters is one of them. Mm-hmm. Pretty cool. I think I know what the second one is, right? Ghostbusters basically cemented him as the like go-to asshole in movies in Hollywood. It's funny, like, I think I read an article that said that the, he's one of the, he played the perfect jerk of the 80s. It was him and the <laughs> guy from Karate Kid and back to William Bluffka or whatever his name is. Zapka. Yes, he's in, um, he's in Cobra Kai. Yeah, th- that's, a, that's a really good moniker to have, I think, because when you're in these movies that kind of stand the test of time, like Ghostbusters, like Die Hard, you'll always have a place in Hollywood history, whether you had a sort of a good career or not, which I think we can argue is debatable um, when we get to his Munson score. He'll always have this. So, And yeah, Ghostbusters still stands up. Yeah, it does. Even with all the shit you hear about Bill Murray these days, it, I still enjoyed it. So That first interaction with, with Bill Murray, well, he shakes his hands, got the goo on his hands, and he touches his arm. You could tell he's so uncomfortable with that particular situation. Yeah. And you're like, man, Bill Murray can sense an asshole from a mile away. Killing yeah. it. I think the funniest line of the movie is the the dickless line and whether or not whether or not he wants to be associated with not having a dick is not up for debate unfortunately so <laughs> he says he it's the thing he gets the most yeah <laughs> it's like that's what I get from fans the most 
Atherton said in that documentary that a lot of the scenes with him and Bill Murray were basically improvised. If you guys haven't seen any of those shows, you got to watch them. They're so interesting. Yeah, it's good. The Home Alone one's awesome. I love them. Mm-hmm. His line reads are really, really good in that film. His, he's, Walter Peck is an excellent character, and it's a testament to William Atherton. And another great name. Yes, it is. Yeah, it is. I just buy him as like a snooty government bureaucrat, too. I really mm-hmm. do. Mm-hmm. There's a movie late in his career. I don't know if we're going to get to talk about it. The best part about the movie, I watched a little over half of it, is the movie starts with him being an asshole as a lawyer, and then it goes, and like it starts the movie, and then it goes into flashbacks after that. And I'm like, it's brilliant. It's a brilliant way to, to start a movie. You can do it well. We got another nine years until our next review. So between 85 and 94, he does a couple episodes of The Twilight Zone between 85 and 87. Three different characters in three different episodes of Murder, She Wrote. Well, I don't think we've ever mentioned Murder, She Wrote in 84 episodes. That's a new one, I think. Yeah, it is. Yeah, you might be right. Yeah, so that's fun. That was a big show, obviously. Is that Angela Lansbury? Yep. Yep. Lansbury? Is that mm-hmm. Angela Lansbury? I've been uh, <laughs> listening to her as uh, Mrs. Potts in Beauty and the Beast quite often recently. And let me tell you, <laughs> she has ridiculous flow. She is a tremendous rapper. Christine Baranski, you're a big fan, huh? Big fan. I was going to say, after that, you're going to show Christine Baranski, you're going to show her Manchurian candidate, Ange- Angela Lansbury's finest performance. If you ask me. <laughs> That's a real family-friendly movie there, James. I found I found out Beauty and the Beast was Angela Lansbury and fucking Jerry Orbach, and I was like, what the hell? I'm like, they they tremendous performers. 1985, he plays the corrupt Professor Hathaway in Real Genius, a movie where you get to see Val Kilmer be a sassy little butthole the whole movie. And I think Atherton nails his character here of being the guy who's just, mm-hmm. he's a sleazeball. Huge sleazeball. This is one of his bigger, like, meteor roles as that asshole character. Mm-hmm. Because he's not just showing up in scenes. He's carrying some of the plot Mm-hmm. He does a great job in this movie. And I have a very, very random piece of trivia about this movie because this movie is a massive impact on pop culture. I learned about the popcorn scene at the end. Craig, if that's what you're going to talk about. Nope. I was kind of impressed by by that scene and how they were able to pull that off. I was like, this was pretty cool what they just did. I think I hate him even more in this than I did in Ghostbusters because the only thing worse than a fart sniffing government bureaucrat is a fart sniffing professor. <laughs> I, I enjoyed it. I think it's a worthwhile watch. Again, another one that's not streaming for free. They had to pop the popcorn to fill that house. They they actually did it. That's real real effects. It took them three months nonstop popping popcorn <laughs> to get that much popcorn. Dude, it's impressive. Yeah, that would fall into the category of impractical effects. Yes. <laughs> Literally, it's a three month shoot. Three months of popcorn. They're doing other shots, but there's that one or two team members that are just popping popcorn all day. That's all they're doing. (laughs) It's a pretty cool practical effect that they do at the end of that movie by pushing that out of the house. Was that in the credits, Popcorn Maker? It should be. I mean, it should be. I'd be pissed if I did it for three months and my name wasn't in the credits. Popcorn Wizard James (laughs) D'Imperio. If we ever dig into like weird stories of Hollywood, I want to learn. I want a documentary of the popcorn guy from Real Genius. I think it'd be hilarious. Hell yeah. Three months nonstop means like you got to be comfortable with it going at night. So there's a night shift for the popcorn. 
can't just have that going with nobody there. <laughs> are, are they protecting the popcorn? Like, I feel like a month and a half in, you have to protect it too. There's this whole security thing with it. Um, yeah. They actually had to treat it with uh, chemicals to stop it from like degrading. I'm sure. They wrote in there, it became a huge concern of theirs that birds would eat it because they would like instantly die. And so it became, not only was it an issue making it, it was an issue destroying it as well. The Equalizer, 1987 to 89, three episodes of that. We've seen a lot of this show recently. I feel like almost every act of the past like four episodes was on The Equalizer in the 80s. Big show. Makes sense. Based on the general plots of Murder, She Wrote in The Equalizer, it's very odd that he has three episodes. Yeah. <laughs> like, did he get killed or was he recurring characters? I don't. That's very strange. Murder, She Wrote, three distinct, unique characters. So, okay, that's odd. I'm pretty sure the Equalizer was the same character. Okay. And Murder, She Wrote was over a six, seven year period, too. The other biggie in their 1988s, Die Hard, playing Richard Thornburg. Dick. Eat your heart out, Channel 5. Dick. <laughs> the worst thing. This is my favorite, my favorite performance. Uh, this is my second favorite movie ever behind Goodfellas. Oh, love this movie. I've seen this movie probably 500 times. To the point where I've seen this movie so much that I actually forgot he was in Ghostbusters when we said we were doing him. I was like, what else is he even in besides <laughs> Die Hard? <laughs> he plays a news reporter who is trying to break the story of the takeover of the Nakatomi Plaza, and he just is a thorn in the side of John McClane in every which way. Total asshole looking for his 15 minutes of fame. You know, Rigby, you were talking 80s assholes in movies. Mm-hmm. You got the second best one also in this movie, Paul Gleason as yes. mm-hmm. Wayne T. Robinson. Jesus Christ, pal. Could be a fucking bartender for all we know. <laughs> I probably quote this movie more than any, and I don't say that lightly because I quote a lot of movies. I just love it. Never gets old. Yeah. Great movie. Incredible movie. Holly McLean does what we all want to do at the end of the movie, and that's punch William Atherton in the face. Great. <laughs> so deserved. I can't mm-hmm. have, I forgot about that part because I haven't watched it. I haven't revisited this movie as much as I should. And when I saw, saw that, I was like, what the? F- this is the worst in this movie. He's so awful. Mm-hmm. He's so good, too. He's so good at it. He is awesome as just like the jerk. I mean, he's getting points. Just on his Munson meter score, just for being in Die Hard and being and being obviously not the main villain because that's you know Hans Gruber, but for like a side character, just being the biggest jerk, he nails it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a throwaway role, really. It's not something that you would ever think that anybody would get remembered for, and he turns it into something. Mm-hmm. That's the beauty of that movie is that every supporting role in that movie is brought out to like number eleven. Yeah, in it, every every supporting performance is great in that movie. Couldn't agree more. This is the second movie from that documentary series that he's in of the movies that made us. And there's three wild facts about this movie that it just floored me. One is that this movie, written to be the sequel to the movie The Detective, starring Frank Sinatra. Yeah. When it came out, Frank Sinatra contractually had the rights to play John McClane, and he had to turn it down in order for them to cast somebody else. <laughs> Thank God. And then they cast Bruce Willis. Everybody thought it was going to flop because they thought he was a joke. And when he was, he was in the trailers, and they would show it, and people would start booing. 
And then my final one that I loved, they tricked Alan Rickman on the scene where he falls from the building, and they told him they were going to drop him on three, and instead they dropped him on one. So the look at his face was actually pure fear as he was falling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> William Atherton plays, I don't know if we will talk about it, but he plays just as big a role in Die Hard 2. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. He gets to enjoy the fruits of his labor in, in that one, too. Yeah, and both of them, in different ways, he compromises the safety of everybody. (laughs) He's the worst worst person ever. (laughs) He exposes who his wife is. So if Rickman sees Holly Gennaro, he knows that's his wife. And in the second one, he's reporting from this plane that they're all going to (laughs) die. And they just happen to turn on Fox Channel. And they they're getting a live report from Dick Thornburg from the the bathroom of a plane. <laughs> That's why it's hilarious because if you if you're you know the ambulance chasing journalist like that's that person definitely exists and mm-hmm. Atherton does a really good job portraying him. Crushes it. Him being in the second one, it feels like that was like a reward for what he did with that character in the first one. Mm-hmm. Again, that person could be anything, but they're like, this guy's, you know, he killed this. Let's bring him back to do this thing again. They expanded it in, a, in an interesting way. I agree. I recently went to that airport, and it's nowhere as big as it seems in the movie. Dulles? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Die Hard 2, Die Hard are underrated. I, I think Die Hard 2 is underrated, too. I like it. I like Great Die Hard 2. Holds up. My favorite way that John McClane... Kills the bad guy too, and that's with the jet fuel at the bat, at the end of Die Hard Two. I don't know why I like that so much. It's super creative. Yeah. Those movies are super violent. Which one is the one with Samuel L? Is that th- the third one? Uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance, yeah. also amazing. Okay, that's my favorite one. I like that one as well. Awesome. That's the one I grew up watching when I was a kid. I, I've seen that movie probably like twenty times. I would just watch it on repeat as a kid. I probably shouldn't be watching that as a kid, but I definitely was. <laughs> there are worse things you could watch. There are worse. Made you who you are today. Unfortunately, Atherton does not, uh, or Dick Thornburg does not make an appearance in that one. No. Nope. His dick went limp by the third one. <laughs> be interesting to see if that lines up with when he was straight. <laughs> I was just going to say, James, it's time for a gay, it's time for a joke, James. He's been straight for 11 years by this point. (laughs) Career's thriving when you're gay. He's been in a beard relationship for 11 years at this point, and it's going well, I guess. Oh, 11. (laughs) All right. Damn, actually, that's a long time. 91. He's an Oscar, plays Overton, a a movie with Chaz Palminteri and many, many other supporting actor types. I don't remember his role in the movie, but if you're looking for a spoof of a gangster film, it's a pretty solid one. It's pretty entertaining. I covered this movie, and I don't remember him. Same here. There's so many, like, in 84 episodes, we've only talked about Tales from the Crypt a few times. It might be two times, and what's hilarious is the two actors we've covered that are both in Tales from the Crypt are from the same episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, which episode? It's from the Easel Kill you episode, which is led by Tim Roth, also, Dan Craig covered episode. I talked about him where he's like, he starts painting death paintings and ends up like consuming him and he becomes a murderer. Again, I don't remember William Atherton's role in it. I just think it's hilarious. We've covered it twice and it's from the same episode. That's awesome. So great. That was such a good show. It was phenomenal. Yeah, it was. Great theme song, too. 
Tales from the Hood, also good. 93, The Pelican Brief, alongside Stanley Tucci and John Lithgow, plays Bob. Maybe not his best name. No, it's probably his worst. It's Bob. I like this movie. It's rated not great, but I like this movie. It's a, it's a little overlong and a little slow, but overall, I don't have a lot of takes on it. I just, I like this movie. It's a good time. For this type of, for this genre of movie, it fits right in there. Like, it's something you should definitely watch. Mm-hmm. Is this a Tom Cruise movie? No, Julia Roberts. Denzel and Julia. Denzel. Oh, okay. Yeah, I love I named Tucci and Lithgow. I did not name either of the main two characters in the film. Months <laughs> <laughs> and references here. All right, uh, lowest critic score. 95's TV movie, The Virus, plays Dr. Holloway. This is about to be the shortest review I've ever had, so we'll, we'll get through this quickly. <laughs> if you're dying, no pun intended, to watch this movie, go ahead and you can find it on YouTube. However, don't watch... The far more entertaining and campy version starring Brian Bosworth. That was the one I was hoping this was going to be, but that movie's from this one's from 1995. See, I thought this was the Jamie Lee Curtis version. I did too. No, the Jamie Lee Curtis version was far better. And I remember William Atherton not being in that movie. <laughs> Virus is a made for TV movie in 1995. The movie actually has a pretty strong cast of good character actors. Stars Nicolette Sheraton of Desperate Housewives, William Devane of probably the greatest sitcom in the last 20 years, which is The Grinder, starring <laughs> Rob Lowe and uh, Fred Savage. If you haven't watched that, stop listening to this podcast right now and go watch that. It's incredible. I've never heard of that show once. It's unbelievably funny. It's unbelievably funny. It's the first time that's ever come across my brain. I got to check it out. Those words. Is that a Good Burger spinoff, Greg? No. <laughs> Rob Lowe is a famous TV actor, and they cancel his series. And William Devane and Fred Savage are a father-son lawyer tandem. And since Rob Lowe plays a lawyer on TV, he decides to go and help the family law practice. And he, plays a, he tries to be a lawyer in real life. It's very, very funny. It's probably Rob Lowe's best work. So mm. William Devane and Rob Lowe and Fred Savage are killing it in that show. Anyways, back to a uh, not-as-good show. The movie, it's directed by Ar um, Armand Mastriani. And you may know him from such classics as Cameron's Closet, Desperate Justice, Come Die With Me, Sleep Baby Sleep, and some of his more later works would be Jane Doe, Now You See It, Now You Don't, Jane Doe, Till Death Do Us Part, and the very popular Jane Doe, Yes, I Remember It Well. So it's loaded with stars. That's all Skinamax softcore porn, right? All of them. <laughs> it's not a very good movie. I lean on Wikipedia for quite a bit of my plot and research stuff for these movies, so I'll just, I'll read you the paragraph Wikipedia has for this movie. This is based on the medical fiction novel Outbreak by Robin Cook. That's it. That's the entire plot on Wikipedia for this movie. <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds like we've covered this movie before. It's literally based on the book Outbreak, which came out as a movie the same year. Its DB title was Formula for Death. So, you know, I don't know. Maybe people know it as Formula for Death. I don't know. Anyways, here's my synopsis of William Atherton. We see William Atherton in the first quarter of the movie, and he's a royal asshole. 
shocker. And then he treats this doctor, played by Nick Lachert, very poorly. He's very condescending. She saves the world in the half, the middle half of the movie, uh-huh. and at the end, he's super nice to her, and he couldn't be happier for her. Is it worth the zero uh, percent critic score on uh, Rotten Tomatoes over there, Kerry? I mean, I think it. I think it's overrated. <laughs> That's enough on the virus. I'm just upset you didn't say virus because I knew it as formula for death, so I was kind of confused. Oh, yeah, that that makes sense. Okay, all right. We've got one year before our next big review here, and uh, we've got two roles in here we'll mention. First and foremost, an episode of Nash Bridges. You know, if you listen and you know, one of my favorite shows from the 90s. Big Nash Bridges guy. Big John, Don Johnson guy there. Cheech Marin. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he plays Alan from Frank and Jesse, a film with Bill Paxton, Rob Lowe. It is unintentionally funny. As a film, uh, the line reads like the writing's pretty bad, and the line reads are corny as hell in this movie. There's a scene with William Atherton where he they're in a train car, and this group Frank and Jesse and their crew are robbing everybody. And William Atherton, stone face, is like, I know who all of you are, and names all of them. And then unabashedly, Rob Lowe says, Well, you haven't met the whole family, and he pulls out his two double pistols. He goes, Let me introduce you to the twins. And then uh, ah. what's this? Randy Travis is one of the, the gang of, of bandits. And he says, give him lead poisoning. And it's so funny because they <laughs> so bad. <laughs> Atherton's a badass in the film, but that's odd for its unintentional camp is what I'll tell you. So he's expanding the range is what you're saying. He's he's memorable <laughs> in the scenes. I'll give him that. He stands out and he's mostly because he's not saying corny ass lines like everybody else is in the movie. All right. But if you love Bill Paxton, you know, I think it's worth checking out. But that's going to take us to our largest audience gap, which is something I'm sure Dan was overjoyed to return to. And that was 1996's Biodome. And he plays Dr. William Faulkner. This is the review I came for tonight. Let's go, baby. Now, boys, you know, I love being here. And I really do. It really is an honor like to be a part of this this show. And I truly, sincerely mean that. That being said. This is easily one of the worst movies I've ever had the displeasure of experiencing in my 46 years on this planet. <laughs> we mentioned Real Genius earlier, where Billy A plays Dr. Jerry Hathaway. Biodome is as if somebody looked at Real Genius and said, yeah, let's do that, but make it not funny and double annoying and not use William Atherton as nearly as much as we should. Plays Dr. Noah Faulkner, and the English teacher in me certainly realizes that William Faulkner, Nobel Prize winner for literature, is probably spinning in his grave at the very mention of his name, even as a surname, in this god-awful piece of crap. (laughs) He's only in the movie for, I mean, what? I mean, please chime in if you know. I mean, it felt like seven minutes, maybe out of the one hour and 34 minute runtime, like he may only be in it for, for seven, seven. I'll give you, but it's an important role. He is the main bad guy. He is the main bad guy, <laughs> but he disappears for a solid 40 minutes. Like in the, in the, cause he's going crazy, Dan. He had to, he spent a lot of time in isolation in the Bible. That is true. And the movie loses any kind of momentum it might possibly have. Like he's got a chance in the beginning to maybe save it. Like he's got some smarminess to him that that we've all grown accustomed to, but man, uh, is he wasted? Yeah, you got a you got a winner like William Atherton in your movie, and you just can't let him cook at all with these guys. I tried 
desperately <laughs> to find some interview where he talked about this movie and had something to say about it, and I could find nothing okay, at all about it. But I did find he's got there's a lot of memorabilia on eBay from this movie that he is personally signed okay, <laughs> and verified. So he can't hate it too much okay, for him to be able to put out that stuff. So if you're interested in any memorabilia, the top the top dollar amount was like 35 bucks for a picture of him with Polly Shore and Stephen Baldwin okay, out there. So if anyone's interested in some of that, could be the only thing you might save okay, from this film. In the top three William Atherton movies, where would you put this? Seven. <laughs> Everybody knows it's not a secret. I have a soft spot. I mean, I love a goofy movie, so I love Paulie Shore in that. Uh, I enjoy him in Son-in-Law. I'm one of the non-Paulie Shore haters because I recognize what he is in Sino Man. Like, come on, we's the juice. Like, let's live our best lives. Uh, it's not a good movie. It's something I saw a ton when I was a kid, so I have like a connection to it. But I, I know you said that he's not on screen a ton, but the the story largely revolves around his character as Faulkner in this movie. When you see what when you watch a lot of his stuff, he actually like a lot of his characters are one note bad guys and they're memorable. But he actually has a turn in this film, which you don't see a lot from uh, William Matherson's characters. So I will say that I'll give you that. And to his credit, he does look like he's having a good time mm-hmm. in it. So like you said, it couldn't have been a totally painful experience for him. Some other things about the film. It got the Sinking Bad Movie Award for most painfully unfunny comedy. This was a bizarre watch for me. I don't I don't hate this movie as much as I'm confused by it. I watched it when I was like younger, so I kind of have like loose memories of it, but I never liked it. I mean, easily one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Like I say that every time now. I'm finding one of those. Absolutely. There's really no way to describe this instead of without just saying it. I don't get Polly Shore. I never got it don't understand it. And I remember as a younger person watching this and just being like, oh, this is just like white people shit. Like, okay. <laughs> like, I don't need to get it. It's Tom Green. Like, I don't get it. I don't understand it. Yeah, I was going to say mid-90s, mid-90s white people shit, even worse. Yeah, like, that's just what it is. So I kind of write it off as that. So I don't hate it because I'm like, there's people that like, really, that this was a thing because of that. So like, it's not for me. <laughs> it was a weird double feature. I watched this and then I watched Jersey Shore Shark Attack. Oh, baby. And almost quit the podcast. Damn. <laughs> it would have been understandable. Oh, save that one. I'm very interested in that review. It's coming, baby. Is that movie based on a true story? <laughs> yeah, Joey Patone got murdered by a shark on the board. Don't you know? That's crazy. So for clarification, Dan, you didn't like this movie? <laughs> yeah, let's make it clear. Yeah. All right, well, let's keep her cruising here. After, uh, keep her cruising. Keep, oh, look at that. Paulie Shore and just incepting into my, my language here. No. Oh. <laughs> 97, Hoodlum, another Tim Roth crossover. He plays Thomas. He plays the DA in this one. Tim Roth's the baddie in this film. I don't think we really talked about much in the Tim Roth episode, but, but another bad guy. In the frame, probably actually not the bad guy, probably the one who was supposed to be good, but in the frame of the movie, makes him look like the bad guy. Three episodes of The Practice is, again, a DA, DA Pratt from 97 to 99. I put this in the chat. The first film I watched with him where he didn't play a villain was in 1997's Mad City. He plays Dolan, a news reporter. 
which I thought was interesting. I've never seen this, and both Dustin Hoffman and John Travolta were. This is mid nineties. They were they were huge stars, but I still have never seen this. And good to hear. Good to hear Atherton played a uh, a non jerk news reporter in this one. For once, it was weird. It's an okay movie. John Travolta. Basically, he's not doesn't really want to rob the bank. Dustin Hoffman plays a, uh, a reporter who has essentially befriended him inside the bank and is trying to talk him off the ledge and coordinate with the authorities. So it's it's OK. Not great. That is not what I thought it was about at all. What do you think it was about? <laughs> I thought it was about like city government. No, I'm thinking of uh, City Hall, I think, with Al Pacino. That's the movie I'm thinking of. Yeah, the, we, we covered that a few episodes ago. Yeah. Yep. The Outer Limits, an episode of that in 98, and then the uh, film that Case mentioned earlier, introducing Dorothy Dandridge alongside Halle Berry, plays a film exec named Daryl. He's only in, like, one scene in the film. And he's he's good in his scene, but it's obviously a Halle Berry showcase is Dorothy Dandridge. It's a good movie. It is. It's a really good TV movie. HBO film. Highly recommend. Yeah, HBO, they were so far ahead of those made, the quote-unquote made-for-TV movies back then. They made, they made a lot of really good movies. He was in The Crow Salvation. He played Nathan. That's a film I wanted to get to, but I couldn't track it down. Nah, you don't. The movie sucks. I don't want to see it. Is it bad? I saw it with Kirsten Dunst, right? I remember watching the first one when I was younger and thinking it was like deep and artsy. And then watching the second one and hating it. And then rewatching the first one and realized I hated that one also. I was like, oh, this just these are just movies I don't like at all. And they made two of them. <laughs> they made more than two, didn't they? They made five of them. Oh. And this is this is the third. Well, there you go. It must cost zero dollars to make. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you with some graphic novel circles, these movies are probably very popular. Yeah. Probably. But anyways, with the turn of the century and the millennium came our last review, which is Largest Critic App, and that is Atherton's role as Stanton in A Race to Space, and Aubrey has it. 2001 movie. I'll kind of get into that in a minute. James Woods is a German scientist who works, is hired by NASA to help build rockets to win the space race against the Russians. His son is having trouble in school because his dad is German. So this and his mom died a handful of years ago. This kind of sends him on like a downward spiral. Has to go to work with his dad when he leaves school so he can get his grades up. In which he stumbles on what I believe to be like a secret training of chimpanzees to go into space first because it's not safe for men to go. This is where he friends in a strange way a chimpanzee helps train this chimpanzee to go into space wins the love and affection of his father wins the space race we defeat the russians and communism and america reigns <laughs> this is like a family movie it's it's a weird movie james woods has this accent that is just god awful yes it's just brutal it's a bit a beat down kid actually isn't really all that bad i wouldn't necessarily say he's good but in comparison to the adults that are around him is a shining star how would you compare alex lens in race to space versus alex lens in home loan three 
Home Alone 3, low-key masterpiece. So <laughs> got to give the edge to that one. <laughs> I like Home Alone 3. I'm not a hater. So. <laughs> no, I, he's he's really not bad in this. Like stuff with him, and this is going to be so bizarre to say out loud, the stuff with him and the chimpanzee works. <laughs> I usually hate stuff like that. Not a big fan of these type of movies. Fan of chemistry. They do, I guess. <laughs> it's just, it's an odd movie, man. It's weird because it, it's one of those movies that I feel like this is a TV movie because it doesn't, doesn't really look aesthetically like mm-hmm. a real movie. So, like, you're kind of just in this uncanny place the entire time that you're watching it because what you're seeing doesn't really track. Music is terrible. It's just so bad. And took me out of what was going on a handful of times. But also, ultimately, the movie kind of works because it's basically just formula. Mm-hmm. Cute kid goes through like an emotional growth and helps, you know, win the affection of his father. Like it it works from someone who has issues with his dad and wanted the affections from his dad. It works every time. Like there's parts of this movie. That genuinely are moving because the formula works, not necessarily a ton of what's happening in the movie. It's not a terrible watch. I wouldn't say that I align with the critics in their, what is it, 71% Rotten Tomatoes? 71 to 39. Yeah. Probably closer in the middle. It's fine. It, it's fine for what it is. Yep. That's kind of what I would define it as. It's fine for what it is, and you'll get a lot of fun, unintentional humor. And Atherton plays the exact character you would expect him to play. He plays like the director of the space program who's a dick and is kind of a hard ass and making sure they stick to the plan. Perfectly well cast. He's in it for like six minutes. Yep. Tries to kill the chimpanzee. (laughs) We also get another William Devane sighting. That's exciting. (laughs) That's what I said when I saw him. There we go. It's not a great use of your time, but it's not a glorious waste of time either. Mm -mm. Let's round this thing out. So we got... That was 2001, so we've got essentially 20-plus years since then. But if you haven't picked up by now, we've hit most of the biggies. So some of the other ones in you know since 2002, a couple episodes of Law & Order, being a guy from Connecticut and living in New York and doing the Broadway scene, honestly shocked it took him until 2002 to end up on Law & Order. But he did it, two episodes. One of my favorite films, Last Samurai, uh, alongside Ken Watanabe, it gave me a reason to rewatch the film. Atherton is in the first five minutes of it as uh, Tom Cruise's like tyrant of a boss. He packs a lot of punch for his few moments, but then it completely has nothing to do with him. It could have been really anybody, but Captain Nathan Ingram. He's pr- he's pretty good in his scenes. I'll give him credit. Is this the scene where Tom Cruise's character is basically having a meltdown? Yeah, he's and he get, and he gets fired as the rifle person. He doesn't get fired. He's just drunk off his ass at the show and ends up having a PTSD moment in front of everybody and fires off a gun and ricochets it all over the place and almost kills a bunch of kids. Okay. And then he gets recruited by Billy Connolly to go train the Japanese infantry how to fight the samurai. There you go. But So he's in the very early part of the film. He goes to the voice acting side in 2003 in Justice League. He plays Dr. Destiny and John D in a couple episodes of that show superhero side exactly what rigby loves to hear he's gonna add a few bonus points there he's got a distinct voice but i feel like a lot of 
the effectiveness of his delivery is that he looks like an asshole too. So <laughs> I, I don't know. I was curious if the voice work was as effective as the, as the total package. Good question. You hadn't really done much voice work. That's an interesting thought. That's a good question. That's a great question. Did an episode of Boston legal in 05, a couple episodes of desperate housewives alongside our boy, John Slattery in 2006. Great show who died on that show by being impaled by a fence post. 2007, he's in The Girl Next Door. He plays adult David Moran, uh, so kind of bookends the film. I got about halfway through the movie, and then I realized, wait, the story seems familiar. Oh, it's the exact same fucking story as Elliot Page in the movie American Crime. It's the exact same story about this crazy mom uh, and her kids torturing a young girl in the basement. Oh, dude, that's that's based on a fucking person that Indiana. Mm-hmm. Yep. Local. Here. It's the same story. Same film. A neighborhood? <laughs> uh, Indianapolis specifically. Yeah. I thought you were going to say Alicia Cuthbert, Cuthbert moves next door and she's a porn star. <laughs> That's what I thought this movie was the whole time. That's a way better story. That's a way better story. When I saw The Girl Next Door, I was racking my brain. I was like, where the fuck was William Hatherton? Was he at the porn convention in that scene? Like, what's going on? <laughs> like, where? No. It's a really depressing. It's a fucking torture movie. I like the the actual girl next door, not this one. It's a really bad film. Do not watch it. It's also just the story you don't want to watch. No. <laughs> it's like so fucking sad. The version with Elliot Page is better, and that's a low bar, but it's definitely better than this one. This one's pretty rough. Yeah, sure. this one's got a 6761 critic fan though. That's wild how high that is. They love torture. The torture community got a hold of this. Big fans. <laughs> it's the only thing I can surmise. <laughs> and then between 08 and 2012, he does one to three episodes of a lot of big time television shows that you've definitely seen or heard of. So Monk, Life, Lost, Law and Order, SVU, Castle, Workaholics. So lots and lots of TV around 2010. And he goes back to the theater side in 2011. He does a musical, Gigi, in LA. So he goes back to his bag where he got his start, um, which he had kind of stepped away from for a number of years a number of decades yeah oh yeah it's been a while since he's done that but you know what pulled him back i wonder if he's still at the pipes you're the one with the research on that one you you got to dig that up for us but you know what brought him back from the musical side was getting offered a role in the next greatest guido shark movie jersey shore shark attack he plays dolan and i really need to hear aubrey's uh, review as a shark movie enthusiast I love shark movies. I love almost all shark movies. <laughs> almost. Love earnest shark movies. <laughs> I want like ones that try. I the the sci-fi channel craze of making movies. You generally believe most people that make movies are there to try to make really good movies. And I don't think when they were making this is like but this is post Sharknado, right? So this is like Yeah. Right in the midst of that time where they were just putting out absolute dog shit over and over again. And that was the bit. We're not really trying to make this movie good. Those movies I don't like. And that's what this is. Like, this movie is just, it's terrible. And it's not, it doesn't rubber bridge into so bad it's good because they're trying to be bad. So they're bad at being bad. So it can never actually make it good. (laughs) That sucks. Everything about this is ridiculous. The most disappointing part about this movie is it's Jersey Shore Shark Attack. They're parroting the the Jersey Shore people. So much so that the names are slightly different. Nookie is one of the girls' names, which I feel like they didn't put a ton of thought into that. 
one letter difference. They're kind of poking fun at them. Sharks don't eat them, which is why we're all here. I feel like they missed why we would want to see this movie. And it's because I would want to see these people eaten by sharks. You want to see the Guidos get eaten, not Joey Fatone. Why did Joey Fatone have to get eaten by a shark? Even though he was a bit of a dick in the movie for some reason? I don't understand. Impractical Jokers makes him seem like such a nice guy. He's just like randomly this big time dick. It's so good because he's standing maybe 15, 20 feet from the edge and this shark like leaps over to bite him and kill him. (laughs) I mean, if you're in one of those movies, that's how you want to go. You want to go in a ridiculous way. He catches a straight. Yeah, like Samuel Jackson. Well, no, no, you can't. You can't. You can't reference but might be the greatest deep, movie of all time. Deep Blue Sea? The same. These are two different things. <laughs> two different things. Two different things. This movie, I just don't, I can't, I can't, I don't like these these movies that like, these ones are the ones I'm like, these are a waste of my time. Mm-hmm. Was Atherton's character Dolan a nod to the popular Knicks owner, James Dolan? Based on what he was doing to the Jersey Shore Pier, people <laughs> from that area would probably think so. <laughs> This <laughs> was actually a reference to Jimmy Dolan Shake and Bake from the air up there. That's what it was a reference to. It's an, it's an homage. Wow, good pull, Kyle. Hated that show. <laughs> and then you went to go do your laundry and go to the gym and tan, right? <laughs> yeah, and I've been to the Jersey Shore before. <laughs> Too many sharks? There are sharks there. There, are, there, are, there actually are sharks there. See? Based on a true story, uh, Joey Fatone did die. Based on a true story. <laughs> you guys are just laughing about it. <laughs> <laughs> we should be more sensitive. You're right. Aubrey, you're you're on a losing streak with shark movies. I am. Yeah, what was the last one that sucked? Oh, it was with uh, Michael Caine. Michael Caine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Jaws of Revenge. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. 2012, he plays Winston in The Citizen. So this is the movie I referenced early where the movie starts with him as a lawyer roasting this guy on an immigration court case and then he asks this like very difficult question and then it flashes back to his story on on his immigration stuff not i watched the first half or so not an awful movie uh critics hated it fans liked it and, and to be fair too since 2013 so in the past 10 years he's done he has seven credits so he's not been terribly busy in the past seven years so or 10 years there's not been much to pick from including uh he played viceroy berto mercado in five episodes of defiance in 2014 and then i think i i I found conflicting reports was he in ghostbusters afterlife with chris chris hemsworth in 2016 does he make an appearance in that movie like it's not on imdb i read that he did in other places like it was on the numbers but it wasn't on imdb or rotten tomatoes so i'm not entirely sure the last three credits I have from him are Jin, Clinical, and he was the cinematographer for Not the Science Type. I don't see Ghostbusters on my list. Oh, he did cinematography. Look at him. I sure did. Is this the 2016 Ghostbusters? I don't remember that one very much. I only saw it the one time. Uh-huh. Yeah, I guess it's not Afterlife. That's the most recent one. This is the all-female rendition of it. So I don't know. The internet would never lie, though. So I, I, I have to buy it, right? It's important. Okay, yeah, there's not much else otherwise that's worth noting. So we're just going to jump straight into top performances and see what Rigby's got for us. Well, there's not much to note on this one either. Uh, He is one of the few actors that we've covered that I could not locate a top performances (laughs) 
yeah. best known roles. So no super fans out there. No, I I figure we just do our favorite roles. I kind of already named them, but my favorite role of his is, and it's I think it's his most memorable is Die Hard. I'd agree. Some will disagree and say Ghostbusters, but Die Hard to me will always be top for him. I mean, this is going to shock. I think his best role is Sugarland Express. Like, best pure acting role. Agree. Sugarland Express. Not most memorable, but best. But it, So I would put top three is Ghostbusters, Die Hard, and Sugarland Express. Yeah, that'd be my three, too, for the same reasons. Sugarland Express was, what he did there was incredible. He's also, like, the main star. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it's... Yep. He found his bread and butter as, like, a side character, but he's He's the main guy in that movie. Oh, my, my top three would be Die Hard. And then based on what you guys said, I certainly trust that Sugarland Express would be number two. And then number three would be Real Genius. I was going to say Real Genius would be a top fiver for me as well. And then probably, I mean, I know as much as I don't like the movie, The Day of the Locust, he's pretty good in that film too. So what's funny is they, I was in my research, I, you know, I do these searches for like top memorable roles, whatever, and I couldn't find one, but there's a list, there's an article from 2022 from Collider that's called, it was something to the effect of 15 actors who like can't shake a role that they'll always be known for or something like that to that effect. And instead of, and Atherton was on here and instead of Die Hard, it was, he was Walter, it was Walter Peck from Ghostbusters, which I thought was interesting because mm. I can't see him as anything else, but, but Richard Thornburg. I mean, he got tased and punched and punched. <laughs> I mean, it's awesome. He's, he's, he's got a great physicality, but he got his Peabody award out of it. That's all that matters. <laughs> That's right. Honorable mention. Don't sleep on him. It's doc, Dr. Faulkner from Biodome. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> and say the movie was good. I said I like him in the role. <laughs> okay, months and meter time. What we do, we rate every actor on a scale of zero to a hundred based on a variety of factors that could include longevity, project choice, pop culture impact, acting range, awards footprint, any other talents they might have, personal life, comedic jobs, box office success, or anything else that matters to us as Munson's. And this time, we will start with Rigby. Yeah, I mean, is this the first time we've talked about Die Hard? Yeah. Yes. So seeing that Die Hard's my second favorite movie, I don't think we've talked about Goodfellas yet either. Goodfellas is my first favorite movie. You're going to laugh, but he gets five points just for being in Die Hard and being one of the main characters in Die Hard. I think that's fair. Ghostbusters is obviously a classic. Gets points for that. I wish, really wish I would have seen Sugarland Express just because of the whole Spielberg thing and also of Kyle's kind words about the movie and, and sort of his performance. That, to me, is my biggest regret about the episode. Hopefully, I'll be able to watch it post-episode. But, yeah, I mean, I think it kind of goes without saying. There's not much range there. While he is perfectly cast as, like, an 80s jerk, the 80s were a long time ago and can't really say he's done much since then. So I hate to do it to you. Mr. Atherton, but you're going to get one of my lowest scores and give you a 58. That actually might be my lowest if I think. Of... I think it is. Let me. One of them. One of them. I don't know. It's. <laughs> it's. I'm conflicted, right? Same reason Rigby's talking about. I love his character so much in Die Hard. Love his character in Real Genius. There's odd question marks that I have about his career when I look at when we've looked at the path of 83 other performers. The way you guys are talking, this dude hit a home run in his like third movie ever as the leading character. 
And it's tough for us to even find another leading role. So that's just a very strange, I don't know if he doesn't want to do that. I don't, I don't know. The roles I love him in, I love him. Anytime I see him on, it's it just, it brings you back and, and you can count on it. The one really positive say I will think about, I will say about his performance is in a lot of roles where he's cast as that villain. He kind of is a, is a moral compass. You can use him to gauge how shitty other people are in a lot of roles. That's super effective, right? Like he added such an, a crazy dynamic to the movie Die Hard to the true villains of that movie. And in both Die Hard 1 and Die Hard 2, he adds a very powerful dynamic to that role that not a lot of other performers do. But it's just not enough for me to crank up his score and add a bunch of points for this and that. I'm going to give him a 55. I'm going to take like the Corey Wallace approach with him for evaluation in that his his career and trajectory and like I want to know more about his manager and the choices that he made along the along the way for his career because... I've watched a lot of stuff with him. I think he steals scenes every time he's on screen. I, I mean, I look at Last Samurai. He's on scene on the screen for a couple minutes, and yet he he's compelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I watched him in uh, Sugarland Express. I know he can be a lead. I know he can be a captivating, nuanced lead. I know he can do it, but he just didn't find those roles. I mean, maybe it was competitive. Maybe it was... You know, he had bad representation. Maybe he just didn't care to do those things. He maybe doesn't have the spotlight. He seems, other than his uh, conversion from being gay to straight, there's not a lot of information out there. <laughs> so, other than, you know, that massive, you know, <laughs> elephant in the room. Who knows what happens, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, but who, you'd get away with anything in the 80s. So that wouldn't have stopped most actors at that point in time. So... He's just a fascinating human in a really like secret way because you just don't know a ton about him. He's clearly a, a very talented performer. I think he has more range than people give him credit to, but he just doesn't take roles that allow him to put that range on display. He's very good at what he does, but because you don't get to see him do more like the Sugarland Express and Real Genius throughout the rest of his career, then it's it's hard to kind of give him a, a high score. So, and there's a guy on YouTube named William Atherton who's a dog trainer and so that it hurts his pop culture impact because if you look at William Atherton, 60% of the videos are some dude who's a dog trainer. So that's not good for your <laughs> SEO. <laughs> Brilliant move by that dog trainer. You got some easy marketing out of that deal. <laughs> William Atherton from Diehard? Uh-uh. The dog trainer. Oh, okay. <laughs> so with all that, the nuance of my score, I'm going to give him a 53. All right, Dan Craig, you're up. All right. Well, I'm going to look at him this way. The guy has worked steadily in Hollywood, in theater. Next year will be 50 years that he will celebrate 50. Holy shit. And that's pretty impressive, I think. Mm-hmm. He has two films in the National Film Registry, Die Hard and Ghostbusters. He's one of these guys, when you see him in a movie, you know you're, gonna, you're in for something. Right? That's going to be pretty interesting. I think most actors would like kill to have one movie. Right? That is like that deemed culturally significant. He has two, and if you throw Sugarland Express in there, right, which again I couldn't agree more right, with your guys' take on his performance there. Like I would love to find out why Spielberg never worked with him ever again. And I feel like Spielberg had a lot of roles 
later on in his career, yeah, that would have been like tailor made for Atherton. I'm thinking uh, Peter Coyote and ET would have been a great Atherton role. Yeah, even you know one of the scientists in Jurassic Park could have worked really well for him. Yeah, but yeah, I'm curious as to what happened there. He never worked with Goldie Hawn again either, so maybe he just didn't love his experience on that film for whatever reason. But but anyway, I think the the you know he's not a Brad Pitt, he's not a Leonardo DiCaprio, but he's a solid performer who yeah has stood the test of time. And you know for for me and for for my childhood, like he's in two of the two of the seminal movies of my experience. So that's going to bump him up just to, just a touch right, in my overall estimation. I'm going to give him a 61. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a hard score to give because his career is, is interesting. Like so as you guys laid out, he gets points for Sugarland Express. Cause I'm just blown away by it. He comes out of that. He comes with that out the gate and it was just so good. Uh, Die Hard, Ghostbusters, huge points for that because they're just notable franchises. And he's he's a good actor. He's not bad. He does he comes and does the thing that he does that he's supposed to do, and he does it pretty well when he's there. There's just not a large path of work from him, like in terms of like seeing him really get to go. And when I that's a big thing for me when I do these scores is I want to see like what what are you at your best? Like I want to see you really get after it you just don't get a lot of that with him which is disappointing so it's a little hard to place but he's a good actor it's a good time watching his movies i'm gonna go a little lower i'm gonna go 51 all right james round us out he's a great asshole uh he's in some iconic roles i thought trillion express was good just not a huge fan uh give him a 47 all right with that that gives william atherton bill atherton a 54.17 which, as a few of you looking at the spreadsheet will see, that puts him in 83rd place. So just above Chris O'Dowd with the 53.5. And slightly behind Annie McDowell. Feels fair. Good job, Dan. You're the kiss of death for any of these actors. (laughs) (laughs) And give Chris O'Dowd time, you know? That score might go up. I will tell you this. If I read anything where Goldie Hawn dislikes him i am editing my score immediately <laughs> i might give him a zero that's my girl if he if he mess with her and she doesn't like him I, I don't like him so just fyi aubrey what does he got coming uh not a lot which isn't really surprising as we laid out what his career has been looking like uh-huh. this tells you everything you know about the role that he's got coming up he is the father in a movie called where did the adults go so i'm not Thinking on a lot of screen time there. There's not really a ton of people. There's nobody in here that I know of, really. Could be anything. And then, I don't know, is it a spoiler? The Ghostbusters sequel. That would be fun. I mean, that's the bread and butter. Yeah, it makes sense seeing them back there. Which Anytime they'd call, I would I would say, yep, I'm in. When do you want to make 20 more of these things? I'll put an extension on my house. <laughs> Pretty sure he's been waiting for this call. Yeah. I saw I saw the numbers on Afterlife. You guys did pretty good. You're doing another one of these. Uh-huh. If anything, that'll at least be fun. So yeah. mm-hmm. something to look forward to. All right. Uh, next podcast is hitting on June 22nd, and we're bringing back Dave Marvs, who was with us for John Turturro, Daryl Hannah, and Brian Cranston. Dave's is always a lot of fun. One of one of the good one of the good ones. He will make you laugh and. The wheel selected one of these five actors, and Dames decided to join us for one of these five. So we've got Jesse Eisenberg, Jennifer Lawrence, Tim Allen, 
Tara Strong and Jodie Foster. Do we like dislike? There's a lot to like here. I'm a big Jesse Eisenberg guy, so I'm in on that. I was just gonna say there is a there's a ton to like there. I'm with you, Aubrey. Tara Strong's the only one that doesn't immediately ring a bell to me, but the other four are great. Tara Strong is most known she's a voice actor she has like 600 credits she's like eric the eric roberts of voice acting but good at what she does <laughs> that's, the, that's the best way i'd put it it'd be a very interesting episode to do it's a hell of an analogy well now i have to look up like if you think of like animated characters you're like hmm 50 50 chance tara strong probably voiced that character wow oh Irish, yeah all right i'll look it up if i'm being honest i'd don't want to do the Tim Allen episode because I think I would be less of a fan after watching and looking at his entire body of work. Buzz <laughs> <laughs> Lightyear's iconic. Got some gems in there. I mean, I'd watch the Santa Claus, obviously fantastic home improvement. Santa Lots Claus is actually better than I remember it being. <laughs> I rewatched it. It's pretty funny. So good. It's probably my favorite Christmas movie. Like Aubrey loves the Grinch. I, I love Santa Claus. Santa Claus is good. This is like my number two or three. Mm-hmm. Santa Claus is up there. Kyle probably wants to do Tim Allen just for the Detroit love or the Michigan love. <laughs> we could all do some cocaine to yep and film on record on cocaine. Mm-hmm. The Jennifer Lawrence episode would be amazing. You do love Jennifer Lawrence. I'm a fan. Yeah, I agree. You are a fan. I'm a fan. She's great. Be a lot of fun to go through that. Some Hunger Games. Another return to the passenger side. We almost cover the full cast of passengers at that point with Michael Shane and Chris Pratt. Just have what fish, fish room left. <laughs> I love that movie. Passengers? I thought the movie. Su- I didn't see it, but I'm pretty sure I, I haven't it. seen it, even though we've you know covered three of the four actors because everyone says it sucks every time we talk about it. <laughs> well, that movie got blasted. Mm-hmm. I am well aware. I'm alone on this island. I love that movie, though. I don't know why. It just works for me. You'd be alone on that ship, too. Mm, I missed that one. <laughs> If we do that one, I have passengers like pajama pants that I got for as a promotion from going to the see the theater. <laughs> so I'll wear those. <laughs> so random. <laughs> Jodie Foster is the one that intrigues me the most. I think Jodie Foster would be a ton of fun. Of course, I could be a lot of fun. I mean, I think we'd watch more high level movies with Jodie Foster. Yeah, I say that'd probably be the highest score, right? Definitely of the, that group, probably. Yeah. I mean, Silence of the Lambs. Unbelievable movie. Taxi Driver. Unbelievable movie. Contact. The Accused. Contact's great, too. Jodie Foster and The Accused. That, the, the Accused is good. I know. It's a little far-fetched, but she's awesome in it. Oh, yeah. Inside Man. Oh, yeah, Inside Man. Aww. Inside Man. Panic Room. Oh, Panic Room. That's a I'm good one. looking through the rest of her stuff right now. I really don't... As much as I think the Tara Strong episode would be interesting, I don't want to build that uh, show notes. Yeah, Uh, here's a clip of her as dill pickles. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, she's got 639 credits, bro. I have to be honest, Tommy is the protagonist, but dill is quite (laughs) the little side. She's a legend, but like, man, she voiced the character in Guardians 3. Yeah, she's on uh, Loki, too. Mm -hmm. She's a voice on Loki. Be a fucking journey in itself. All right, so who do we think Dame's mobs chose? Uh, who did he pick last time? He chose Totoro, Daryl Hannah, Brian Cranston, Jody Foster. Jody feels like a Jody Foster thing. Okay. Dan, who would you pick if you had to repeat back to back? Yeah, Jody's the right answer there. 
Jody Foster. Okay. She got the most great stuff. Two-time Academy Award winner. There we go. That's a, that's a sales job for the next episode, potentially episode 85. I want Tim Allen. All right, well, uh, Dan doesn't decide. Dames doesn't decide. James and his Tim Allen fandom doesn't decide. The wheel decides, and we'll see what happens. Dan Craig, we've we've reached the, uh, the, the peak of the mountain, my friend. You're always great. We appreciate you. Awesome. Thank you. I appreciate it. Love seeing you guys. This is great. Thank you. You're awesome, dude. Thanks for joining us, man. Any uh, any plugs or words of wisdom for our uh, Oof, jeez. Don't smoke crack. Don't, <laughs> Don't smoke crack. All right, man. Well, until the next time, number seven. Lucky number seven. Next time we'll bring you in. It'll be a good time. Awesome. Can't wait. Thanks, Dan. Well, as we wrap things up, you know, we find us on Twitter, Munson's at Movies. Catch us on the gram, Munson's at the Movies. You can email us, Munson's at the Movies at gmail.com. Any final thoughts from Billy Atherton? I want to know more about what you do here. Frankly, there have been a lot of wild stories in the media, and we want to assess any possible environmental impact from your operation. Munson's out. Let's go. Thank you for the education, gentlemen. We've just received a PhD in stupidity. Doctor, shall we? Everything was fine with our system until the power grid was shut off by Dickless here. They caused an explosion. Is this true? Yes, it's true. This man has no dick.